0: Amen. God bless you, kids. God bless your children's workers. We appreciate you. <clears throat> All right. If you're still here, if you haven't left with the kids, then open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. <clears throat> this is uh, part two of a sermon that we actually started last week. Uh, as I was preparing that sermon last week, it, it just immediately became clear to me that we could not do that justice. Given the stakes, um, given that this is a battleground issue, some of the things we, we believe as Christians, the culture's not really pressing back on, right? Um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There, there's not a lot of cultural pushback there. But some of the things we believe are are really under assault. And so you, you have to drill down. You have to slow down. You have to make sure that you're covering this from every angle. And so I just thought it might be better and wiser for us to do this over two weeks. So, however, though, uh, given COVID, right, where we're, we're all a little uh, infection cautious, and so if you've got a sniffle or your wife's got a sniffle or your neighbor's cousin has a sniffle, we're all, you know, well, we better stay home. And so there's just a little, little more uh, up and down in terms of who's here at any given Sunday on a, on a specific morning. So I thought, you know what, this isn't going to work unless we give just a little bit of review to help folks get up to speed. First thing you need to understand, we're in, inside the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is not a sermon about how to get saved. It is a sermon about how saved people should live in a fallen and occasionally hostile world. That's very important. Now, in the first uh, 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the essential character of a Christian. This is what a follower of Jesus should look like. And then in the next uh, handful of verses, verses 13 to 16, he's talking about the expected influence that living like that will have. Which, by the way, just that, just that connection, moving from that idea to that idea, is interesting. What it it means is that our character as Christ followers is intended to be the content of our witness to the world. Part and parcel of our witness to the world. An amplification, a supporting mechanism in terms of the witness of our world. It's important for us to see. It's important for us to understand that sometimes, often, the best witness we can give to the culture is having the courage to live consistently distinctive lives, to not get on board with the spirit of the age, to not go along with everything that passes for wisdom in the moment. For If we're going to be Christians, a lot of times it It means saying, we can't go there with you. We need to depart. We need to follow Jesus on this matter. So that's what he's talking about there. That's what it means to be salt and light. Now, for the next several chunks in the Sermon on the Mount, what he's actually doing is correcting some common misunderstandings of Old Testament teaching because bad doctrine eventually leads to bad behavior. How many of you know that? We often separate those things. We're like, well, my behavior box is over here and my belief box is over here. No, no, no. How you believe is how you will behave. In fact, if you've got a behavioral problem, chances are you can pull on that thread and find a belief problem. And so Jesus is patiently going through these things. He's correcting their understanding of the Old Testament so that they can live distinctively as the followers of God, as the people of God in the world. And last week, we started to talk about how Jesus began correcting their understanding of marriage and divorce. The covenant community in Jesus' day had a deeply flawed doctrine of divorce. They were reading the Bible wrong on this matter, and so Jesus began to correct them. He took the bar that they had put way down here, and he raised it way up here. He put it back to where God had originally put it. Why did he do that? Because marriage is no mere concession on God's part. It's, it's no minor note in the great symphony of God. It's, 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 it's not some concept that God threw out willy-nilly, as we talked about last week. It's, it's not something optional. It's not something that's just cast out there. It is woven into the plan. Marriage is a huge part of how God intends to care for human beings, and it's a big part of how God plans to communicate with human beings. And so he demands that it be treated with the dignity and significance that it is due. That's the gist of the passage. In Matthew five thirty-one to 33, Jesus adjusts the bar for divorce within the covenant community so as to ensure that Christian marriages would continue to support and enhance our gospel witness to the world. Now, let's just stop for a second. Do we all understand that dynamic? Do we all understand that how we behave in certain categories will either reinforce or undermine our gospel witness? Husbands and wives, do you understand that how you behave as a husband, how you behave as a wife, will either reinforce or undermine what you say about the gospel. Do we understand that? Do you understand that you can be the best evangelist? You can have the, you know, the 5G little manual that we, we wrote out to help you understand the gospel. You can have the 5Gs of the gospel memorized. But if you are bitter, if if you don't forgive, dad, if you don't have your appetites under control, mom, if you're constantly negative and and critical whatever, whatever flaw we want to think of right now, if you are cherishing that flaw and living out that flaw, you could pretty much throw your 5G handbook in the garbage. You understand that, right? The gospel is not going to be compelling to your kids. it's not going to be compelling to your friends and neighbors. That's what Jesus is saying here. Behavior communicates. marriage communicates. It communicates very loudly. And so if our marriages are out of tune, that will drown out everything we're trying to get across about the gospel. So that's why we're taking the time to drill down on this today. Now, last week, uh, we, we talked in general terms about, about the passage there. We, we identified a general principle, right? High bar. We, we acknowledged a, a compassionate exception clause. We want the bar to be high, but not infinitely high, so it's crushing everybody. But we want the bar to be high. And then we began to talk about, about how if we could retune our marriages this way, the potential witness that would have to the world, marriages like that would communicate. And we started talking about that. Last week we talked about how marriages like that would communicate something to the world about the value and dignity of children, which is a really important message. Now this week we're just going to add to that list. That's what we're doing. So this is really an extended application. hope, hope we're not saying anything new today. We're just bringing this down down and pressing it into hearts and homes a little further, because I think we need to. Now, to help us with that work, I want to encourage you actually to open your Bible. I you, this is like a two-passage thing this morning. I want you to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. I believe in you. I believe that you can have two passages open simultaneously. So Ephesians chapter 5, if you can get there, keep a bookmark or a hair or, a, I don't know what you would use. Take, take something and stick it in Matthew 5 and, uh, and, then, and then stay open at Ephesians 5. The apostles generally fleshed out and applied the, the teaching of Jesus. Jesus said that, that marriage was intended to communicate and So here's the apostle Paul under the power of the Holy Spirit beginning to flesh that out a little bit. He's doing our homework for us. It's very helpful. Now, I know you get tired of hearing me say this, but this is, this is going to be one of those passages that's going to make more sense to you with a Bible open in front of you. Okay, I, don't, I don't know if this will translate on your phone. I, I doubt that it will, but you, you, God bless you, millennial, if you want to try that. Uh, but it's going to be so simple for you if you, just, if you just have a Bible open. So there's one under you, the pew or the chair in front of you, if you can grab it. All right, here's, here's what you need to understand. These little headings that you get, see, in my Bible, you get little headings there, walk in love, husbands and wives. Do you have little headings like that? Those were not in the original manuscripts. I trust you understand that. Uh, Those are put in by Bible publishers because they understand that when regular people open a Bible, they're generally looking for something, right? And what are they looking for? Marriage advice, right? What what is the only reason regular people pick up a Bible? My wife is about to leave me. Show me some marriage advice. And so this is highlighted for you. Marriage advice! And, And so this is good for marketing, not great for understanding. Because actually, the advice here would be crushing and confusing if you don't read the paragraph before. Okay, so if you know, millennial uh, tip: do this. Uh, regular person, or, or eyes eyes up. I shouldn't be making fun of millennials. It's just my house is filled with them, and I the technology intimidates me. I'll be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> All right. So here's the thing. Look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, how you walk, how you live. That's an idiom. Look carefully then how you walk. So this whole paragraph, this whole section is about living wisely as the people of God in a very hostile and confusing world, which means what? It's covering the exact same ground as the Sermon on the Mount. So this also is not a paragraph about how to get saved. There's lots of those paragraphs in the Bible, okay? This is not one of them. This is about how God's people need to live in the world. You gotta be wise, you gotta be aware, you gotta be on top of some things. You have to think carefully about some things. Okay, so that's the setup. This is all about... living the right way as God's people in the world. Now look at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. How many times has that verse ripped right out of its context and, and applied as though it's not part of a larger argument? Actually, what Paul is saying here is, I'm about to tell you how to live in the world, but I want you to understand, you have no hope of doing this if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. I'm about, I'm, I'm about to tell you how to live a life of distinctive Christian character in the world. But if you try to do this with the Holy Spirit, you're going to pull a muscle or blow your mind. Or, you know those commercials on TV where you see people doing incredible things or those YouTube videos where people are jumping off bridges and landing on a sea dew and, and, uh, and usually there's like a disclaimer at the bottom, uh, do not attempt this at home, right? You will hurt yourself. You'll pull a muscle. Uh, something bad will happen to you. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. If you try to do this in the the power of the flesh, in your own power and will, you will fail. So you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you read this in Greek, this is the only imperative. This is the only command in this entire section. So this is the main command. The the big issue is you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit so you can live a distinctive life in the culture. And then he begins to unpack and he begins to unpack and begins to apply in verse 21. So we'll drop down to verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. That's the issue. The nature of our witness in the world is that we're going we're gonna to actually put self second. And we're going to serve other people. And the most obvious example of that is how we do that in marriage. All right, so again, if you just skip right to the advice and, and you miss all of that, you're going to hurt yourself with this passage. So let's, let's take a look now. Let's, let's read it. We're going to actually start, even though it sounds a little awkward in English, we're going to start at verse 21 where he begins to apply this to the issue of marriage. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. This mystery is profound. And and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Joseph Heinrich Uh, wrote a book last year during the pandemic uh, that actually created quite a ripple in the wider academic world. It's a book, maybe you saw it. um, it It was on some of the bestseller lists. The book was called The Weirdest People in the World. The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. Isn't that a good title for a book? The Weirdest People in the World. How the West became psychologically peculiar and particularly prosperous. Now, his argument builds upon a, a, a book that was released a couple of years before that, I think it was 2016, by Kyle Harper, which argued actually that the sexual revolution started by Jesus essentially built the modern world that we're all so eager now to set on fire. By the way, did you know that Jesus started a sexual revolution? He did. Now, we, we think of the sexual revolution as that thing that happened in the 60s, right? But actually, that was a turn back to what had existed before Jesus. The first sexual revolution was the one started by Jesus in the first century. The one in the 60s, the sexual revolution of the 60s, was the one where we encouraged women to be as selfish and liberated in their sexuality and relationships as were men. But the original sexual revolution was the one where Jesus told men to be as restrained and selfless in their sexuality as women. You see, in Jesus' day, men occupied a very privileged position with respect to sex and relationships. A Roman man could have sex with almost anybody. He could have have sex with his his slaves. He could have sex with prostitutes. That was not considered uh, morally reprehensible. He could have sex really with anybody other than his neighbor's wife. That was sort of the one off, off limit, which is why Jesus is saying, you understand if you set the bar there in the church, that's not gonna be interesting to anybody. Everybody agrees that we should not be seducing our neighbor's spouse. That's not interesting. That's not going to make an impression on anybody. Jewish men, of course, could marry a young woman, enjoy her beauty and company, and then send her away the moment he found anything displeasing in her. No consequence in that culture. No censure. But now here comes Jesus, and he is making it virtually impossible for a man to send his wife away. He is saying that women aren't disposable he is saying that marriage is not disposable. And he's telling men that they need to love and serve their wives their whole lives long. And nobody had ever said anything like that. And we miss that. We miss that because we have grown up longing for, right, that sexual ethic that is under assault in our culture. But we assume that's the background air for regular people. It was not. No one had ever said this sort of thing before Jesus and the apostles. It was revolutionary. It was revolutionary, which is, which is why the disciples said to Jesus when he gave this teaching, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Are you hearing that? Those, that's the disciples speaking, not the Pharisees, not the critics of Jesus. His closest followers thought this was insane. This is Matthew this is James. This is John. And they're saying, Jesus, if you raise the bar this high, if you tell men that they have to love and serve the same woman for all the days of their life, that's insane. You're never going to get a man to follow you. That's what they are saying. If that's the deal, Jesus, it'd be better for us not to get married. Jesus is good. Then don't. Right? He literally goes on to say, if you don't have the grace from God to do this right, then don't do it. Because if you do it simply out of your own instincts and strength, if you do it simply according to the standards of of the culture, your bad marriage is actually going to obscure what God is trying to say to the world. So better not to do it, right? Jesus says, because actually what we're trying to do here, fellas, speaking to his disciples, what we're trying to do here is launch a whole new way of approaching sex and marriage. That was the revolution that built the modern world, according to the secular anthropologist Joseph Heinrich, who, by the way, is not an associate pastor at Grace to You. He is actually the chair of the Department of Human Evolutionary Bio- Biology at Harvard University. Do you understand that? Here's, here's the deal, friends. People in our culture right now, and by that I mean people in the shallow end of the culture. So I, I'm, I'm just talking about the, the, the cultural influencers, not the cultural understanders. They're all saying, we need to get rid of of Christian marriage. We need to get rid of the the patriarchy. We need to get rid of all this nonsense. But here's the chair of human evolutionary biology over here at Harvard University wringing his hands going, guys, does anyone in your little group remember what came before Christian sexual ethics? Be careful what you wish for, right? It was the Christian practice of marriage that changed the world. Maybe we better think twice before we abandon it. Biblical marriage is an explosive idea. It is a culture-creating approach to social life. And as Jesus said, it is also the most effective witnessing program that has ever been conceived. So let's get into it. Christian marriage says something to the watching world about the value of children. That's what we talked about last week. But, but now, in the passage that we've opened before us, we're helped to understand that Christian marriage also says something significant about the beauty of mutual submission. Now, as I said, the first sexual revolution was about encouraging men to be as restricted and selfless in their sexuality as were women. Now, the one in the 1960s was the exact opposite. It was about encouraging women to be as liberated and selfish in their sexuality as men. Which sexual revolution do you think is going to lead to a better world? Jesus told his disciples to stay married to the same woman for their whole lives, which required them to become more restrained and more selfless than they could have got away with in the culture. You could put your wife away in that culture. When she reached middle age, you could marry a younger woman. No one would bat an eye at that. If you were a Roman pagan, as many of the early followers of Christ were, you could sleep with your slaves anytime you wanted to. That was one of the main reasons to have slaves. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You, you can't touch another woman, you can't look at another woman with lust in your heart, Jesus says. Well, right away, that, that ruled out sleeping with slaves, that ruled out sleeping with prostitutes, and of course, that would rule out pornography today. Now, you could get away with all of that as a man in the first century. You can get away with most of that as a man in the, in the 21st century. But Jesus is calling on men here to be as restricted and selfless in their sexuality as were Women, or at least women in the first century. Women in the first century were required to submit to their husbands, unless they were slaves or prostitutes. They were required to exercise their sexuality within the boundaries of marriage. Which is interesting, because we find Ephesians 5 offensive to women, and yet there was nothing in Ephesians 5 that would have been offensive to a first century woman. They were already doing that. Of course a first century woman was submitting to her husband. Of course, she was restraining her sexuality to the boundaries of covenant marriage. None of that would have been offensive to her because she was doing that all already. What's interesting about the New Testament, what's interesting about this passage is that the same things are required of each. That's the secret sauce, right? That's that's what was different about Christian marriage. The husband was going to have to limit himself so as to serve and minister to his wife. That's the secret sauce. It's mutual submission. It's about putting your own wants and needs second so as to serve, care for, nurture the other person first. Now, of course, we're going to work that out in different ways. A man will restrain himself in ways that are unique to his own situation, and a man will lead himself in ways that are unique to his particular situation. Listen, I understand that you can get yourself into a lot of trouble nowadays by making generalizations, and yet, and I recognize, of course, that there are plenty of exceptions to every general rule. But it is generally true that men incline towards laziness and selfishness. Left to himself, a man will spend all his money on toys that he wants to play with, and if no one forces him to do otherwise, he will lie on the couch all day and watch TV while the world goes to hell in a handbasket. And if and when he has any energy, he will want to use that energy to seek out all the food and sex he can handle. Now, if you're offended by that, first of all, I won't even say what I'm going to say. I'll just say, if you're offended by that, maybe you should read a little history or spend half an hour watching the Nature Channel. Okay? Okay. The male of our species, kind of like the male of most predatory species, tends to do as little as possible, tends to want to eat the most food and sleep with the most females. That is male in a nutshell. And most cultures before and apart from Christianity have been organized around protecting and promoting those basic instincts. And so here comes Christianity. And it says to men, you get one mate and you need to love her, care for her, protect her, serve her your whole life long as Christ loved the church. Talk about setting a high bar because last time I checked, Christ loved, served, protected, nurtured, provided for the church at the cost of his own life on the cross. So that's a pretty high bar, right? Again, the bar was going from really low to really high. And listen, you need to hear that. You need to understand that. And you might be sitting here saying, well, you know, gee, how's this sermon for me? I get, by the way, I, every time we preach on marriage and divorce, I get at least one email asking that question. How is this sermon for me? I'm a single person. First of all, I just want to say, all of us have the experience sometimes of sitting in a sermon that's really f- more, more directly targeted at the person beside us. And yet, as a body of Christ, remember the verse we started with? Let yourself be built into a spiritual house. Learn to think group. Sometimes the message you're hearing is actually so that you can better support the person next to you in obeying what the Bible has to say. Do, you want, do we understand that? There's a role for all of us in, in, in figuring out how to do marriage this way. And it's really, really, really important. So you need to understand that... that we're taking the bar from way down here and we're we're lifting it way up here and this is so important that we that we do you've heard me refer a number of times to Rodney Stark's uh, book the triumph of christianity by the way i just find it interesting to read intelligent atheists or unbelievers talk about Christianity. I don't find it interesting to listen to what people on Twitter who aren't Christians think about Christianity, but I do find it interesting to think about what really educated historians and anthropologists think about Christianity. Because like I said, the cultural influencers have a really bad attitude towards Christianity. The cultural understanders are desperately concerned about what their friends on Twitter are doing. Rodney Stark's not a believer, just like Joseph Heinrich is not a believer. Rodney Stark wrote a book on the triumph of Christianity. And one of the things he said is that, in his opinion, we would want to talk about the Holy Spirit. We would want to talk about, you know, the attractiveness of Jesus. He's a historian. Here's what he talks about. He said the main reason that Christianity conquered the Roman world is because of what it required of men and what it offered to women. Do you understand that? Before Christianity, the bar was very low for men in terms of what was expected of them. Christianity took that bar from here and raised it up here. And when women saw that, they came flooding into the early church such that the original critics of Christianity said that it was a religion of women, slaves, and children. Why? Because women, slaves, and children felt safe in a church that required this of men. And they didn't feel safe anywhere else. And so I'm just saying, this is really, even if you are sitting here and thinking, well, I've got one notepad open for me as a husband or as a wife, good. Have another notepad open for you as an evangelist in a culture that is trying to figure out whether it hates, loves, needs, or despises Christianity. You may just want to remind people to think carefully about what the sexual ethics were before Christianity. And there's tons of history, most of it written by unbelievers, to help you have that conversation. So the bar is going way up here, right? But you can do it. When the bar goes way up, it can be crushing. You can say, well, how am I going to do that? You've put the bar way up here. How am I going to do that? Again, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's why you have to read Ephesians 5, 18 before you read 21 and following. This is why the apostle Paul said, be ever being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, you can do this. See, Jesus expects more from people because he's going to help them more. And so Jesus says to men, yeah. Remember, the disciples said, Jesus, this is nuts. Nobody can do this. And so as in their advice is maybe find a halfway. Jesus says, no, I'm leaving it here, and I'll tell you why, because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to help you live to to that bar. So men, if you're truly saved, if you have a new heart, if you have the Holy Spirit living within you, then you can rise above the level of your petty lusts and instincts. You can. Porn addiction does not need to be a fatal disease. It does not need to be a life sentence. The blood of Jesus is stronger than that. The Holy Spirit is stronger than that. Do we believe that? Greater is he that is in us than all that stuff that is in the world. Do you believe that? I have to stop talking about these things as though they're life sentences. They're not, not for true Christians. So yes, Jesus expects more from you because he's gonna give more help to you. But you need to use that power that he gives you to submit to and serve your wife. And wives, you need to respect your husbands. Now, as I said, nothing in this passage would have been offensive or even, dare I say, noteworthy, possibly noteworthy, but definitely not offensive to a first century woman. They were already doing this. The only thing the Bible adds here, actually, has to do with attitude. Paul says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. See, that's attitude. Add the attitude, Paul says. Because, of course, it would have been possible to submit to your husband while not respecting him. In fact, that would have been very easy to do, right? Not submitting was never an option. None of these women, whether they were Jewish or Roman, had the option of not submitting to their husbands. But they certainly had the option of not respecting, right? You you can submit while undermining. Anybody have a PhD in that? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Totally possible to do this, right? But again, Jesus is saying, that won't be impressive to anybody. That won't be noteworthy. That's just par for the course. But a truly willing spirit, a truly gentle and humble attitude, well now, The kids and the neighbors can't help but notice that. If you want your marriage to tell a story, then husband, become as restricted and selfless as your wife is with respect to sexuality and relationships. And wife, see and let others see that you respect your husband. In a day and age that is celebrating selfishness and glorifying appetite and desire, a marriage like this will communicate something very compelling about the otherworldly beauty and culture-making power of mutual submission. Then thirdly, a marriage like this is going to say something, and it's thirdly because we had first last week, okay? Secondly, if you're having a note stroke and wondering what just happened there, okay? Thirdly, A marriage like this is going to say something to the watching world about the nature of Christ's relationship with the church. Again, Jesus was not an innovator with respect to sexuality and marriage. He was a reformer. He was always taking people back to God's original design. In Matthew 19, where he gave a longer version of this teaching, he begins by saying, have you not read? Let's start with what the Bible says. Have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Maleness and femaleness was part of the original design. In Genesis one twenty six to 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them, so that them means that first man is actually man in the generic sense, like we used to do. Today we would say human beings, right? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over everything that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see that? Maleness and femaleness were always part of what it meant to be human beings. And human beings were always intended to say something about God. That's what it means to be created in in the image and likeness of God. It means to resemble God and to represent God in creation. Human beings were meant to be creating and communicating species. That's what we're learning here. And essential to both of those tasks is our maleness and our femaleness. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Are you seeing that? Gender communicates. Sexuality communicates. Marriage communicates. Is it any wonder then that these are the things most under assault in our contemporary culture? Oh, the devil would love to obscure what God intends to say through a man and a woman in right relationship with one another. And so our job as Christians is to make sure that doesn't happen. No matter what the neighbors do, no matter what pronouns they use, no matter what, no matter who they sleep with or how they define marriage – we are going to do it the Jesus way. This will be our mission. Can you say amen to that? This will be our mission. I'll tell you, this will be our mission in the next generation. We're going to have to fight for this. This is not going to happen by accident like it did in grandma's day. If it did in grandma's day, you're going to have to fight for every inch of what we're talking about today. But if if we can do this, and when I say fight for it, I don't mean fight to force your neighbors to do it. That's not what we're told to do. I'm saying fight for us to still believe it and practice it in here. Do you understand that? If we do that, it's going to witness. Because who we are as male and female in intimate relationship with one another says something to the watching world about God. It says something about how God can be a singularity and a plurality simultaneously. There's no good analogy. Have you ever tried to describe the Trinity to children? There's no good analogy for that. Everyone you think of will be bad and unhelpful, right? Uh, The Trinity is like a a three-leaf clover. No, it's not. Knock it off. The Trinity is like, you know, how water can be a liquid. Shh, shh. That's not helpful either. The only authorized, and it's not even all the way, it's just kind of a, like a partial, the only authorized illustration is human beings in the sense that, boy, when you get a man and a woman who are really one flesh, I mean, it hints at the idea that one flesh can be, can be one, but, but also a plurality. And so we see something there. Says something about how God is love, love within himself, but also overflowing from himself. Says something about how love produces life. Marriage says so many things that desperately need to be said, that the devil is desperate to not have said, but that we as God's people have been charged with saying. And so, no matter how hard the devil tries, no matter how many imitations, deceptions, or distortions he introduces, God in his wisdom has ordained this witness to be perpetuated and preserved through the institution of marriage. As long as we do marriage the Jesus way in here, we will preserve and perpetuate a witness to God's character and nature. And and the Apostle Paul adds here, we'll preserve an important aspect of that, which, which is the nature of Christ's relationship with the church. Look at verses 32 to 33. This mystery is profound. This mystery is profound. A mystery refers to something that is true, that is hidden, that people don't always see, but that becomes clear. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, Paul is kind of moving from the very high plane down to the practical plane. He's saying, Yes, I mean, at one level, this is marriage advice. So, yes, please do take it. But you understand, there's also profound communication happening here. That's what he's saying. It's profound. A ah, yeah, good marriage it says a whole bunch of things to the watching world. A good marriage communicates. A good marriage preaches. A good marriage witnesses. And Paul says it says something specific here about Christ and the church. Well, what is that? I think if you read carefully what Paul says in Ephesians 5, you'll see that he's got two things primarily in mind. First of all, he's saying that when a husband dies to himself so as to serve and sanctify his wife, he's, he's preaching the gospel. Whether he knows it or not, he's preaching the gospel. Because, of course, Jesus had to, think of all that Jesus had to do. Think of all the ways Jesus had to die to himself in order to save and sanctify the church. He had to to die to his dignity and glory. He had to die to his riches in heaven. He He had to die literally on a cross in order to save and sanctify the church. So when a husband dies to himself, right? When a husband dies to his animal instincts, when a husband dies to his lusts, when a husband puts away his porn and his toys so as to provide for and prioritize his wife, man, that husband's preaching the gospel. And When you wash your wife in the water of the word, when you commit to the process of her growth and sanctification, man, you're preaching the gospel. And, and then wives, when you respect, receive, and, and respond to your husband, you're preaching the gospel too. You are showing the watching world what the church does in response to the ministry and grace of Christ. The church grows, the church glows, and the church is glad when she receives and responds to Jesus. That's the gospel. And and that's a gospel that the government can never shut down. That's a gospel that the devil can never silence or obscure. And that's the gospel that the disciples of Jesus Christ have been charged with preserving and perpetuating in this world. Oh, God, help. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you have set the bar high, but you have made the grace run deep. And Lord, that's that's how we want it. We don't want you to lower the bar. You don't want us, we we don't want you to expect us to live less than the lives we were created and intended to live. But Lord, we just come to you right now and and freely admit we need help. Lord, I would imagine there are many hearts this morning who just feel crushed under that bar. That's the instinct when we see the bar. We think, well, I haven't lived that bar. I tried to jump over that bar and it hit me right straight in the forehead. And so Lord we just all want to confess our sins right now. Not a single person in this room has lived up to the standard set by Christ in loving the church. No one. Not a single person in this room has responded to her husband as Christ as the church is supposed to respond to Christ. Lord, all of us have fallen short. And so we ask right now for grace, for help, for mercy in Jesus name. We're so thankful for the cross. We're so thankful for mercy. But Lord, We want to be more than forgiven people. We want to be restored people. We want back the life that you created us and intended us to live. And so, Lord, we want to ask right now for further outpourings of the Holy Spirit. That's the point of this passage. Be ever being filled with the Holy Spirit. Your own marriage failures, my own marriage failures, are supposed to make us, Lord, hungrier for the Spirit. So we just want to respond to that right now and say, Lord, our mouths are open, our hearts are humble. Fill us right now with the Holy Spirit of God. Give us the grace we need to keep tracking against this standard so that our witness could be distinct and compelling. And Lord, there's such a need for that as our culture begins to abandon what Jesus taught us about sexuality and marriage, as we begin to think that we can just pull something out of our instincts, out of our desires, out of our social media feed that will be a more lasting and fruitful foundation for human society than the foundation laid for us in Christ as we pursue that madness lord there are going to be more casualties and more fallout on, on in the ditch on the side of the road and so we need to be able to step forward and say hey listen we know of a better way not in a judgmental way lord we need to step forward with love and compassion with bandages and oil lord we need to do that first but then we need to say can i tell you about jesus Can I tell you about a tested way, a sure foundation, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for his church in his excellent word. Lord, we used to sing that. We used to believe that. May we live it again. May we say it again to a world that desperately needs to hear it. We ask in Jesus' name.